So we're all Anna. Are you are you going to be in Montreal in a couple of weeks? I'm not. No. Oh, come on. Sadly, I don't think Sarah is either. So I think it's just you and me, Rue. All right. Well, at least I get to see you. That's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, you do. We are having a giant get together with all of the tech folks and all of the product folks at One Password. Uh, we're all going to be in Montreal for a week. No wonder I'm not there. I'm not a tech folk or product folk. Yeah, you feel adjacent in a way that means you should be there. I don't know. You can FaceTime me. There you go. We'll probably do that. I'm sure Matt and I will send you photos. Oh, okay. Am I I'm not worthy of a FaceTime? I've stopped doing that when me and Anna meet up now. I've stopped sending you photos. I, I'm not quite sure why, but... Didn't you send one room of me and you at my birthday? No. What? I didn't. Oh, you didn't like the way you looked in that photo, did you? That's probably true. It was like Matt and the Six Chins. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and the Six Chins. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an awkward angle you, for me. You look beautiful whatever angle, Matt. However many chins you have. That, that is definitely not true. <laughs> so from like at least like 60... Of the 90 degrees, I have, like, a weird no-neck situation. I'm trying to rectify this. I've developed a gym habit. I've gone to the gym every day now for four weeks. I'm quite impressed with myself. That's amazing. And you're you're young enough that it's actually going to make a difference, too. Fantastic. Yeah, but old <laughs> enough that it still hurts every day. Uh, <laughs> Are you realizing some gains here? Like, what's happening? Oh, there is no gun show yet. Yeah, no, don't don't get me wrong. Okay, like, okay. I am physio over fitness, uh, to be honest, at the moment. I'm just trying to get back to zero. Are all the gains mental? Yeah. If anything, it's made me grumpier because... You ache all over. Uh, <laughs> the people who apparently attend my gym essentially are well-dressed ironing boards. Like, just <laughs> the people that go to the gym at seven in the morning, which is, which is when I go. They're slamming the protein shakes, I bet. I mean... The percentage collectively of body fat in the room is under 10. A great morning confidence boost there, Matt. Mm. Yeah, that's that's not a lot. I take uh, offense to the intro that we have lined up here. Uh, Random and Memorable does have a new look, new artwork, new logo, and all of that. But I dispute the fact that we actually look like a professional podcast now. I, I designed the other artwork. Uh, thank you very much. All right, I did it like three or four years ago. So it was definitely dated, but yes. the professionalism of my design, uh, I don't think is under question here. Okay. It's not. I mean... Your original artwork is the standard to which any replacement has to live up. I think so. It will live in, in museums, right, as a, an old artifact. It's, gonna, it's in the Smithsonian, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Okay. It was professional, but dated, but I, I like where we've gone with the new look. Me too. I do too. Yeah. That's really good. I like that it almost looks like it's being bleeped out for swearing. Mm. No, it's really it's really nice. Did you do this one too, Matt? No, I didn't. They don't let me design anymore. <laughs> no, this was not Matt. <laughs> I think we need to give a massive shout out to our amazing brand and design teams. I think they've kind of captured the tone and, and the fun of the podcast brilliantly, really, with the with the new design. Good job, folks. Shall we drop into some Watchtower Weekly? Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do it. So Let's get into some Watchtower Weekly. This is where we like to highlight some of the latest security headlines and breaking news from the last week or so, and share our thoughts on them, our unwanted opinions. So this <laughs> week, is uh, we're kicking off with a story from The Verge, which is that X, 
it's Twitter. Please, should, should we just? <laughs> can we just make a thing? We will just say Twitter. Yeah. Twitter wants permission to start collecting your biometric data and employment history. I don't know which one of those makes <laughs> me feel more uncomfortable: the biometric data or the employment history. Yeah, I like that this story isn't just your biometric data. They want your employment history as well, you know, just to put it over the edge. So, the platform previously known as Twitter is expanding the amount of data it collects on users. The social network has updated its privacy policy to include caveats for biometric information and employment history. The new privacy policy reads, based on your consent, we may collect and use your biometric information for safety, security and identification purposes, but doesn't actually list any details of what kind of biometric information it includes in this or how it plans to collect it. But I'm guessing it involves generally like fingerprints, irises, facial features, that type of stuff. It's probably no surprise that X Corp was named in a proposed class action lawsuit in July over claims that its data collection violates the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. The lawsuit alleged that X had not adequately informed individuals that it collects and stores their biometric identifiers in every photograph containing a face that's uploaded to the platform. The privacy policy adds that X may also collect your employment history, educational history, employment preferences, skills and abilities, job search activity and engagement. This likely hints to the related job search feature that Elon Musk has hinted at, including in the future. The platform recently rolled out the beta of hiring feature for companies also plans on adding audio and video calls with no phone number needed as well. So some of this relates to features that, like, they've hinted at, but, like, a lot of it is, right, we'll gather all this data, we have plans for features that we haven't made public, but, like, we haven't got there yet. I, I, don't, I don't like it. You know what I like about this article in particular is that it is reminding me that I should go and delete my Twitter account. <laughs> I did that the other day. I deleted all of my tweets rather than, like, removing my account so I could just, you know, sit on it, sit on the username. It is very, very difficult now because of the removal of the API to actually delete all your tweets. Yeah. I had a service that would delete any tweet of mine older than a year. Oh, so you've only got like a year's worth of tweets. Yes. But I'm pretty sure that that's even, yeah, because I've got tweets here from August and July of last year. Uh, so it's clearly not working anymore. Yeah. The API changes, I think, ruined all of these things. I, I used uh, something that deletes my tweets and it took about a week and a half to delete them all because it was like scheduling all the API calls. <laughs> See, I feel like I was ahead of the curve here because I deleted my Twitter account like two years ago now, I think, and I don't miss it one bit. No, I haven't used it in a long, long time. Yeah, I feel like Elon Musk has just become like a bit of a parody of himself, really, hasn't he? Like he's just become a modern day Bond villain at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, maybe he just needs to go read a few self-help books like some people are beyond help Anna. <laughs> yes how to rebrand a business for dummies or something like that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so this one before the magpie and squirrel that are apparently best friends sitting on the wall distracts me thousands of dollars stolen from texas atms using raspberry pi so this one's from tripwire a raspberry pi can do a host of different things 
<laughs> or it can be needed to be rebooted six times like mine. Uh, but this isn't the first thing that springs to mind. As a Texas court has heard how uh, last month a gang of men used a Raspberry Pi device to steal thousands of dollars from an ATM. So three men were recently arrested in Lubbock, Texas, after attempting to steal large sums of US currency from ATMs. The men were arrested in a hotel room where they found a number of Raspberry Pis and other evidence that was recovered. According to court documents, the men used a Raspberry Pi to assist in the heist, plugging it into the ATM and deactivating its security system so the money in the cash drawer could be accessed. Witnesses allegedly saw the men steal more than 5,700 from one ATM and multiple other ATMs across West Texas. 5,700 doesn't actually seem to be that much split three ways. <laughs> that That is... I, w- I would not I would not risk going to jail for that. That's a that's a lot of risk for not a lot of reward. Yeah, yeah, totally. But if they hit these other you know ATMs as well, and and you know they have a a Raspberry Pi that can do so, maybe they're building the technique. If this technique works and be can be exploited time after time at multiple ATMs, and critically, if you are not captured in the process, then it may begin to look more attractive to the typical budding criminal. Details of how the gang breached the security of the ATMs have not been made public, <laughs> perhaps understandably. And if this was released into the public domain, there is clearly the possibility that other criminal gangs might try something similar. Although, I, I bet this is a Google search away on the dark web, like, <laughs> seriously. We'd all be loading up Raspberry Pis if we fancied the, the, the risk of this. I, I do not fancy the risk of this. I do not. Nope, I would not be doing this. Although these days, it's hard enough to find an ATM in England, let alone one that you could, uh, you know, risk doing something to. Yeah. Are um, they becoming as rare as phone boxes? Like, is it just not a thing you really see? Anymore? I think we have more phone boxes than ATMs now because people think phone boxes are cute. <laughs> yeah, they're very British, aren't they, and twee. Although most of them contain defibrillators now. Or inappropriate ads. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> so although the use of Raspberry Pi may raise some eyebrows of surprise here, it makes a lot of sense for any criminal attempting to interfere with an ATM. A Raspberry Pi is not only cheaper than a laptop computer, but it's also easier to carry around and it is easier for a would-be ATM thief to hide on their person without kind of raising a whole bunch of suspicion. Cybercriminals targeting ATMs is, of course, nothing new, but the use of Raspberry Pi here is quite interesting. So, what do you think? I think that this is a pretty natural evolution of the crime, quite honestly. Like, the Raspberry Pis are, like, tiny little programmable pocket computers, so it doesn't surprise me that you could program one to do something like this. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I I think there are a couple of Black Hat examples of people being able to do this. I wonder how fast it is, like, how long they have to spend at the ATM. So, I I used to work for a bank for a while, and... ATMs are actually like Windows XP computers <laughs> that just run some something else. <laughs> That's reassuring. So I'm not surprised at this at all. Excellent. I see why we moved away from cash. <laughs> yes. Every time I go to use an ATM, I'm, I stare at the card slot and just look at it and go, is that a real card slot? Am I about to have my card stolen? Is that what's happening right now? <laughs> oh, every time I do that, I'm like, why do they build them? So it looks like there's an edge around it. Yeah. Like, just just why do they do that? All right, this next one. Google Chrome pushes ahead with its targeted ads that are based on your browser history. So Google has gradually been rubbing out Chrome's enhanced ad privacy. 
This is technology that, unless switched off, allows websites to target the user with their adverts tuned to their online activities and interests based on their browser histories. Because, as we all know, the name of technologies generally goes against the thing that it actually does. <laughs> what? Enhanced ad privacy. Yes. You know, that thing that lets you be targeted with ads. <laughs> because it's not leaking your privacy google, google i'm sure maintains that information because that is the thing that they are like essentially selling they don't share it it's just all baked into a nice little thing that you could call and post an ad to so a pop-up announcing this feature has been appearing for some time since since about july and the release of chrome 115 uh, which included support for google's topic api which is part of the tech titans privacy sandbox project again the name contains it probably does the opposite (laughs) a small percentage of chrome's users are being pulled into the topics api in in small batches so if you do use chrome you may not have noticed and how google asks you to agree or accept the ad targeting depends on where you live or rather the laws of where you live google next year aims to drop support for third-party cookies which store browser data that ad companies use for tracking and analytics It has developed a variety of replacement technologies, such as the Topics API, that will allow ad targeting to continue without cookie-based tracking. And it's claimed that there are no privacy consequences, of of course, apart from (laughs) within Google. Topics essentially works like this. Rather than using cookies to track people around the web and figure out their interests from sites that they visit and the apps that they use, websites can ask Chrome directly via its Topics API what sort of things the user is interested in. Then it display ads based on that. Chrome picks these topics of interest from studying the user's browser history. So if you visit lots of financial websites, one of your Chrome-selected topics may be investing. If a site you visit queries the Topic API, it may learn of this interest from Chrome and decide to serve you an advert about bonds or retirement funds. It also means websites can fetch your online interests straight from your browser. Some people presented with this new notification complain it's a dark pattern, as Chrome users may think they're accepting or enabling enhanced privacy from the ads when in fact the Topic's API is already enabled and will remain enabled and has to be disabled in the browser settings. That is to say, the pop-up is a notice that you've been opted in with a little link to the, your settings to disable if you wish. Will Dorman, a, a security researcher, noticed last week that Google's pop-up provides a default got it button that dismisses the pop-up pane and does the exact opposite that the title of the text describes. So if you see a pop-up with got it, you've probably been opted in based on where you are and you might need to turn this topic's API support off if you don't like it and if you have the option to turn it on you're being asked to opt in or opt out that's the the region you're in a region that requires it google has offered repeated assurances that the topics api does not allow companies to identify those whose interests inform its ad api but some developers claim topics may be useful for browser fingerprinting and both apple and mozilla have said that they won't adopt topics due to privacy concerns And probably because they they don't need to because they don't make money like this. Let's be honest, Google has done this because they make money out of serving these ads. It's nothing but their best interest to have a profile about you on your browsing history and then display ads for it. 
my saving grace from this is just that you know what Google are doing with this information. They are holding it incredibly tight to their chest. The reason why they call this privacy is because they are not telling anybody else about this stuff in an identifiable way because like they don't want anybody else to serve you as good of ads as they will. So there's some saving grace there that you know what they're using it for. But also, I, I don't like the fact of how identifiable this will likely be over time. So what you can do uh, in Chrome, because I just I don't use Chrome, but I do have it installed. You go there, you open up your Chrome preferences or settings, you go and you just search for topics in the search bar at the top and you'll get three. There's ad topics, which was on for default by me, uh, site suggested ads which was on by default for me, and add measurement, which was also on by default for me. And so I've turned all three of those off, and you can now do so as well. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I use Google Chrome, not really by choice, but various podcast services that I need require Chrome. So I should get on this. Yep. And also the podcast studio that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's pretty much the only thing I use Chrome for. That and like some of the remote event software platforms require chrome as well so i I just have installed for that okay well if you could stop adjusting your settings while we're talking because i can hear your mouse clicking and it's very frustrating (laughs) oh sorry (laughs) we'll just go ahead and close that tab good great all right i'm back he's just taking action on the very important story okay oh yes i I know yes this is an important news story it couldn't wait (laughs) and if anyone listening you know has google chrome they should go and do the same go do it right now do it right now absolutely whilst you're listening to this podcast i think that's the like antithetical approach of getting to someone to listen to the podcast is telling them to go off and do something else uh but (laughs) i mean we can wait if you like we'll wait it's 2023 people can multitask okay yeah yep okay now that you're back from adjusting your chrome settings i think we've got we've got an interview that you did Right, Matt? What a lead-in. Yes. So I think it's time to get to my chat with Sarah Armstrong-Smith. Sarah is currently the Chief Security Advisor at Microsoft. She has some great stories to tell about being on the front lines of incident response in some really high-pressure environments. This interview is a long one, but deservedly so, because I think Sarah has some solid advice and tips about being a security leader with such an impressive career and how we can all learn to be a little bit more resilient in such a fast-paced and always-changing sector. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Sarah Armstrong-Smith. I'm sure most of you will have heard of her already, but for those that might have not, Sarah is currently Chief Security Advisor at Microsoft. She's been nominated for multiple industry awards, including Most Influential and Inspiring Women in Tech and Most Influential Women in Cybersecurity. She is also an international keynote speaker and author of the best-selling Effective Crisis Management, which explores the traits needed to be an effective leader. Great to have you with us, Sarah. How's your day going? Oh, it's wonderful. It's uh, But here in the UK, it's been full of rain, I think, for the entirety of summer. But it's actually the sun has finally come out and I'm very happy. I just came back from Edinburgh where it is hot but also wet. Summer isn't anywhere, I don't think, at the moment in in the entire UK. So it's unfortunate. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us a bit about your journey in the field and what motivated you to pursue a career in cybersecurity? Well, I will probably have to show my age a little bit, but I'm going to have to roll the clock back over 20 years. 
Actually, I have to start my journey around 1999. I was actually working for a water utility company at the time, and I used to have a very nasty habit of volunteering for things that I didn't really know what I was volunteering for. And one of those things just happened to be the Millennium Bug. So they were asking for lots of people to come and work on this new program. And my role at the time was really to think about what testing had to be done on the stroke of midnight, But I just kind of had this, yeah, but what if, what if, what if the systems don't come back up? What if we can't get people into the office? What if there's no water? How do we get water to people? It's kind of what if, what if, what if? And I didn't realize that this was actually business continuity. So that kind of what if scratched an itch, if you like, and that really started my career in business continuity. But as a stroke of midnight kind of came and went, it was like, well, was that a waste of money or was that good planning? I kind of put it down to good planning. So I was kind of seconded to the head office. I put plans in place for laboratories, engineering divisions, but I was always drawn back to the IT. So in 2001, I joined AXA. And at that time, they'd gone through a number of mergers and acquisitions. And I ended up becoming the disaster recovery manager. But within a few months of me joining, 9-11 happened. And that kind of kick-started a whole range of transformation. So at the time we were working on backup tapes. It was used to take 72 hours to recover. And I was like, well, that's just not quick enough. You know, when we're dealing with these type of major incidents. 2005, I actually joined EY. Just so happened to be the exact same day as the 7-7 London bombings. And so from that point forth, no longer were customers just thinking about business continuity, disaster recovery. Suddenly, they really were wanting to know about crisis management. So I was at EY for two years. And then in 2007, uh, I joined Fujitsu. That's where I joined uh, my side of my career in cybersecurity. So I spent over 12 years at Fujitsu as a management consultant. And then later on, I was actually promoted to the head of continuity and resilience. But it's really kind of bringing all of the business continuity, disaster recovery, crisis management into the world of cybersecurity in particular. And I always describe myself as being on the business side of cybersecurity, hence my background. And it's really trying to think about what's important, what are we trying to protect and why. I can kind of bring this straight up to date. So I joined Microsoft just as we were going into lockdown, uh, funny enough, back in 2020. So I've been at Microsoft just over three years as a chief security advisor. And my role in essence is to liaise with Microsoft's largest enterprise customers, mainly across Europe. So it's CISO, CIO, CTOs, et cetera, really trying to understand the challenges when it comes to cloud adoption, digital transformation, but why we're here, ultimately is cybersecurity. So it's been a kind of a long journey, but I would sort of say it's all pivoted around the subject of resilience. I would sort of say all of these kind of things really do integrate with each other. That's kind of fascinating that you've trained your brain to work like this. How do you kind of keep optimistic in the way of thinking about all of these things all the time, all, all of these what ifs and, and all of this kind of planning around disaster. Like, do you keep optimistic? So I used to think I was a little bit jinxed in essence. I used to think, hang on a minute, wherever I go, there are these major incidents. And I thought, is it me? Is it? <laughs> but actually, slowly but surely, I actually thought maybe I'm exactly where I need to be. 
And kind of over the years, it's really then made me think about where are the opportunities, where are the lessons learned? And you mentioned right at the beginning about me writing my first book, Effective Crisis Management, which actually came about by accident. I never really intended to write a book, but for Cyber Awareness Month in 2021, I did my A to Z of crisis management and it was really kind of reflecting on those incidents over the last sort of 20 plus years. What works well, what doesn't? What are the kind of the opportunities to really make these lessons learn? What are we going to do to make positive change? Not only did it become the publisher's bestseller of the year, once it was published, it was the fastest book also ever written for that publisher as well. And that kind of, in essence, is that what the book's all about. It's like reflection. These incidents are not going to go away. They keep happening. And often they repeat themselves. But it's what we, what do I say? What do we learn from that? In essence, you mentioned that you've been on a a bunch of these incidents and repetition is one of the things that kind of comes across them. But are there any other insights from these kind of challenging incidents that you've experienced? Yeah, I think I was really drawn. As I said, my career sort of went through starting business continuity. But even way before that, I was always interested in the human side of security. So my dad was in the Royal Air Force and he worked in psychiatry. And back when I was little, so about six years old, we lived in Germany. And at this time, it was the Falklands War. And soldiers were coming back from the Falklands War with PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. But it really got me fascinated with the fact that when you have physical injuries, people, they show emotion, they really kind of sympathize and show empathy for those people. But when you have kind of mental injuries like PTSD, it's not visible, but you get treated very, very differently. And it's really interesting to me, even way back when, how people are treated. And I think it's very synonymous with cybersecurity. When it comes down to if you're the victim of a physical crime, so a violent crime, people are like, oh, oh my goodness, so how, how did these things happen? And they, so they show the empathy, they show the sympathy. But when you're the victim of a cyber crime, it's very different. It's your fault, in essence, why you, you're the victim, whether you're an organization, whether you're an individual. And I really wanted to reflect on some of that victim blaming. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect as well that really kind of came to fruition is when I was 12 years old, Piper Alpha happened. And it's the first time that I've ever read a public inquiry report. And it was very fascinating to me that major incidents rarely just happen out of nowhere. And actually, when having read the report, it was very fascinating that there's normally a series of events that led up to this major incident kind of miswarning signs, audit reports, the test reports that are being ignored, poor culture, poor leadership, and kind of slowly but surely over time, this thing then escalates into the type of major incidents. And again, reflecting back on the book a little bit, what I've put into there are some of the worst examples of their kind. When we talk about some of these major incidents, I'm reflecting on 9-11, Deepwater Horizon that kind of followed Piper Alpha and some of these major events. And it's kind of like, again, how bad does it have to get before we take some kind of action? And it's really kind of stopping the cycle. That's really what I'm trying to aim at. And it's the same kind of thing maybe that we see a lot with cyber attacks. They're kind of, they're slowly but surely escalating. And at some point, we are going to see a cyber attack so big 
that it's probably going to lead to fatalities, particularly when we think about some of the attacks on critical infrastructure, operational networks. But we will have this major incident. And at that point, we will look backwards and say, how did we get here? How did we have this major, major cyber attack that's caused this industrial acts, caused fatalities? And then questions will be raised again. But again, if we look backwards in terms of the history of some of these cyber, some of these major incidents, we shouldn't really be surprised when we see these type of incidents occurring. Like I say, that is kind of a key lesson learned for how do we break the cycle? So really the kind of the trend that builds up to these things, if you're looking for an insight of mitigation, like there's a growing pattern of these things that slowly gets bigger. How can organizations and really individuals like prepare themselves to manage and spot these things? I think it's a really great if we bring it up to where we are today. So in the last three years alone, we have not just had one major incident, we've had three. So we've had a global pandemic. But even since then, we've also seen one of the most sophisticated cyber attacks that we've genuinely have ever seen, which is attributed to SolarWinds. And since the beginning of last year, we've seen the war in Ukraine. Now, when we think back, even with regards to the pandemic in particular, I think nobody expected that the pandemic was going to last nearly three years, but we shouldn't have been surprised that we had a pandemic, given the fact that we had one 10 years previous, which is a H1N1 pandemic. So we kind of, there is this cycle, there is this pattern, as I say, that things don't just come out of the blue. But I think if you think about the pandemic in particular, what it really showed is how many organizations, how many individuals really understand what it means to be resilient. So that's organizational resilience, the emotional resilience, that kind of crisis management, really having this kind of major event right in front of you and dealing with it. And some of it has been traumatic for some people. I mean, people have lost friends, they've lost families, and it's it's really taken the toll on a lot of people. But now you've kind of come out the end of that. What next? And I think that we've seen some real positive changes. So we've seen, you know, a lot of companies rethinking their business models. We've seen embracing hybrid working. I've seen a mass acceleration to the cloud. We've seen companies who are willing to invest in new technologies, new innovations, so smart technologies, even AI in particular over the last year. So there's some really positive changes that we can take away from that. But also the reverse of that as well is if we think about solar winds, if we think about the war in Ukraine, we have seen this willingness in particular for nation-sponsored actors. So with the war in Ukraine, solar winds, that was a Russia. But I think of Russia, North Korea, Iran and China as so kind of the big four nation-sponsored actors. Now, historically, a lot of those actors would have been focused on espionage and stealth. So they kind of want to go under the radar. They want to go as undetected and as long as possible. But what we've learned even in the last two years is this willingness that they don't care. They don't care that they've been detected. This thing that we're looking at right now is the going from disruption to destruction. And that's kind of, we've seen this in Ukraine in particular, where we've seen this huge increase in destructive malware, wiper malware, And you want to think about it as ransomware without the extortion demand. So we think about ransomware as locking up networks, it's encrypting machines, it's wiping machines. This is the kind of way we're seeing. We're seeing more actors who are kind of doing these things. 
And it's kind of alluding to what I mentioned with regards to the scale of these type of attacks that we're seeing. So we, we see the run of the mill things all the time, but ultimately it's being prepared for these kind of major events that are kind of going to shift our perspective and almost pivot us into having to take different types of solutions, different type of actions as a result. So you mentioned fatalities and this destruction of information being the thing that these bad actors are building up to. What would you say are some of the true costs of some of these major incidents that probably go unseen? Well, a lot of it comes down to reputation damage. When you think about the cost of downtime, we've seen almost a change in tactics, even with ransomware operators. So some of them are foregoing the initial encryption and just moving straight to the exfiltration of data. So they're willing to take their time, willing to take their reconnaissance, learning about the business and learning about the data. Which data is going to cause the most impact, in essence? And which is the data that you really care about? And what you're trying to see is that uh, when these things are played out in the public domain, it's trying to stir the emotion of the general public. So when you think about whether it's personal data, it's private data, maybe medical data, and even what we've seen in the last few months with regards to the Electoral Commission, people are very concerned that a lot of their private data has been leaked and has been leaked for a very long time, even though you can argue that a lot of that data is already in the public domain. But it's again, it's, it's the emotiveness that goes behind it. And arguably, a lot of the attackers want it to be played out in the public domain because it actually causes more pressure into that organization. It's in the media, it's in the public domain. There's lots of pressure coming from you, from customers, consumers, partners. All of those things are bearing down on you. You're under extreme pressure to decide whether you pay or not pay or whatever the case may be. And so this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring that level of manipulation and control to force you into making a decision that maybe you wouldn't normally make. And as technology itself gets better and better at blocking these known threats and kind of doing the type of things that you'd expect, a lot of the attackers are going backwards. So they're going backwards into social engineering. So why would I waste my time trying to break into your network when I can go directly to the source? And that source is the people themselves. And we have seen threat actors who are very blatant with regards to their willingness to even buy credentials buy a MFA bypass. And you can think about in the current climate in particular, that there's probably potentially more people who might be willing to do that, turn a blind eye with the potentially going into recession, the interest rates are going up. So there's sometimes they're just they're going to be willing and able. And that means that they turn into an insider threat. So actually everything that's kind of going on all kind of interlinks with each other. So it's very important for us to kind of take that step back and look at the big picture of how all these kind of little small things actually interconnect and interrelate with each other to actually cause some of these major incidents we're talking about. I think that's a really great point. You know, cybersecurity is not solely a technical issue. It also involves kind of human behavior and, and awareness. How does Microsoft promote a culture of security and, and awareness amongst its employees? And what advice would you give to other organizations that are seeking to improve their security culture? 
I think a lot of it is lead by example. So if you think about Microsoft, it's a household name. So it was actually founded in 1975, which actually makes it the granddaddy of big tech, if you think about it. <laughs> when you actually, when you look backwards and you think about how many individuals and how many organizations are utilizing Microsoft products. So whether they're utilizing Windows, they're utilizing the cloud, and individuals might be utilizing Xbox, Bing, LinkedIn. And so when you have that many people across the globe utilizing one or more products, you bear a lot of responsibility for that. If I think about Office, for example, and I talked about Teams and lots of people all of a sudden utilizing collaboration tools, they may be not familiar with those tools and what I can share. And so you might have people who are trying to copy maybe sensitive data from an application and put that into Teams. And it will fire up with a policy tip. And it will say, this is personal data, this is financial data, it's you know intellectual property. This is outside of policy. Basically telling people and educating people as it happens when they're doing it, rather than kind of a week later when it's kind of been and gone. So I really think it's about empowerment. I think that's a really, really big thing about how we actually help people to be more security aware without them even realizing it, uh, when it's actually being built in, in the process it's working with them, then against them, which is probably what we think about as security of days of old. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting approach as well, like kind of training in place at the right time. Have you found any other like initiatives or, or strategies like that to be effective? Like a, a lot of companies do just like two weeks of training a year, you know, you go on your thing, you click a few buttons and you press OK, I've done my training. <laughs> this sounds like a lot more in depth and a lot more kind of spread across the year than cybersecurity awareness week type of activities. Yeah, I think the problem with a lot of the, as you say, 13 minutes of e-learning once a year is it's done from a compliance perspective. So it's kind of a tick box approach. So how many people did the training? Did they do their little test at the end? And good job, you know, and that's it, done. But it's actually very simplistic and it doesn't, it's not relevant to the people doing different types of roles. So what's going to be relevant to marketing or someone in HR or an engineer is completely different. And when you have this one size fits all approach, it's people just get despondent to it. They don't particularly care. So I think that's one aspect with regards to having the security built in, making it personal. Why should I care in essence? What's in it for me? Being selfish, you know, security is not my job. You know, if you think about the vast majority of people who are just trying to do their job, they're just trying to do what they need to do. Security might be getting in the way of a few things. So actually, how do we just turn things around? And a lot of that comes down to the language that we use. So we have to stop referring to people as the weakest link, repeat offenders, a problem to be fixed. All of these things are just really negative and just really turn people off. So a lot of it is change the language, but I say, how do I make it relevant? And explaining why we spend a lot of time when we think about policies and processes, telling all the things they shouldn't do, but not very much about all the things they should do. It's actually just flipping it round, making it more positive, making it so they actually feel, again, feeling powered about what they can do rather than what they can't do. That's really great. Changing gears slightly. In your experience, what are some common misconceptions or myths about cybersecurity that you frequently encounter? Oh, well, I think one of the simplest ones is security is a security problem. I think, you know, just when we think about some of the 
incidents that we've talked about, you know, the scale of some of these incidents, the fact that it touches on every single aspect of the business. Security is a business problem, first and foremost, not a security problem. Now, we will have people working in security, but if our expectation is the security team will fix everything, the security team will kind of jump into and we have this kind of major incident. We're not really thinking about security holistically. We're not really getting the best out of that. So I think that's kind of one of the misconceptions. I would also say that uh, one of the other misconceptions is people who are trying to get um, a role into cybersecurity, that you have to be deeply technical to work in cybersecurity. That is not the case. Now, obviously, there are very technical roles. But if we think about cybersecurity, touch on all aspects of the business. So we need people who understand risk. We need people who understand governance and compliance. And we need to kind of figure out all of these different things, you know, what's critical to the business, uh, having a really good strategy and policies and various different things. So that's actually there's a huge array of different roles and different capabilities available to people. But I think one of the biggest misconceptions is this kind of theory uh, that we as defenders are always playing catch up and the attacker is always one step ahead of us. That's not the case. Now, what we have to remember The onus is always on the attacker to evolve first. (laughs) Now, that's a kind of, so the the attackers are having to keep reviewing, keep amending their exploits. And as we get more and more new technology, like artificial intelligence and various other capabilities, they have to learn that. They have to kind of think about all of these things. So I just really want people to remember that defenders, people who are working in security, are doing an absolutely amazing job because they're probably being bombarded day in, day out. So I would just people make sure that they're not just losing hope, but it's you know it's a never-ending task. We're never going to get to the point where we've done enough security, or you know we can kind of hang up our our boots and call it a day. But I think that's that's a really important thing that I just wanted to kind of get across to people that you know we as defenders are doing a brilliant job, which means that the attackers have to be on the back foot. Cybersecurity threats obviously are always evolving, and there's new techniques and vulnerabilities and all of these things emerging all the time. How do you recommend in general that people stay up to date and keep their skills sharp in like a dynamic environment like this? And why is that resilience that you talked about earlier such an important quality to have in all of this? Let's just say that the attacks are evolving at pace and some of that has become as a result of having access brokers. We have cybercrime as a service. So the barriers to entry for many cyber attackers has reduced substantially. So for a few dollars, they can buy exploit kits on the dark web and they're ready to go. And we hear a lot in the media about the sophistication of these attacks and the ferocity of some of these attacks. The reality is the vast majority of them are really not that sophisticated at all. Because you have to think from the attacker's perspective, how do they get a return on the investment? So over 80% of attacks are still phishing. And they're still trying to do the simplest thing possible. So again, if I can get you to willingly give up your credentials, if you click this attachment and it downloads malware in the background, or happy days, again, to put that into perspective with regards to identity and phishing and password sprays, Microsoft identifies and blocks over 77,000 brute force attempts every minute. And that's because it works. 
So with the, unless you're a nation state or a ransomware operator or some of those bigger types of organized crime, the vast majority of them are still doing the same thing they've always done over and over. So from a resiliency perspective, it's not about stopping every attack. It's about anticipating them. It's about how quickly you can detect, how quickly you can respond. But I think the most important thing is, is also what we alluded to earlier, which is learning from each attack. And that's really important about how did they get in? How did they get access? Particularly when we're talking about social engineering, did they have a specifically crafted well-engineered email or was it just luck of the draw because the person was stressed are we the target are we just unlucky and so actually analyzing a lot of these things is what actually provides the resilience and what i find a lot is sometimes when we have near misses so you've evaded an attack you just stopped it in the nick of time people might kind of wipe their brow and move on but actually this is a brilliant opportunity to learn and kind of follow it through what if didn't get stopped in time, what would have happened? What have been the impact? Kind of what are the lessons learned? What are the vulnerabilities? What are the things we need to think about? But also on the positive side, the reason why it was thwarted might be because you had a great plan. You had great technology, great process. People are really alert to kind of what's going on. And all of these kind of things should be celebrated. The key really that we're seeing is no matter what size of organization is thinking about the type of technology that they're investing in. And sometimes we feel like we have to kind of buy more and more tools. The newest thing, the reality, and even what we see in Microsoft, you know, people are vastly underutilizing the technology they already have. So it's not about just go and buy more things and, and scale up, but really kind of thinking about what you've already invested in. And I would hazard a guess that a lot of companies have already made investments in lots of different capabilities. They're just not utilizing it. They've just not refined it. They've not set the right policies and the right conditions. They're kind of not doing that evaluation. So I think that's a, that's a kind of a really important thing first and foremost. Just think about what's already in your kit bag, how you can get the very, very best out of that technology. Is that technology being integrated is it getting the full visibility or are you kind of having things that are kind of falling in between the cracks? Now, dependent on the type of technology and dependent on the resource that you have, and then one of the really, really great things is, is really automation. As much automation, as so you say, blocking those known threats as quickly and efficiently as possible. And even having as something as simple as anti-malware. I mean, anti-malware should be one of the key things that everyone should have, irrespective of the size of company. But anti-malware, when it's tuned properly and it's detecting and it's blocking and doing all the things that it's expected, it's going to make a huge difference. So yeah, I would just kind of sum up as really thinking about current investment, is it utilized? And then before you think about other technologies on top of that. Yeah, I think that's a great point because like as we've scaled, when I joined 1Password, we were 21 people and we're now 1,000. The amount of things that we were like, okay, do we buy this whole new thing or, or do we just use this feature for now? It's kind of a snowball, right? Like it builds and builds and builds. So uh, keep it small while you can, I think. Now, as a prominent figure in, in cybersecurity, you know, you're inspiring and empowering others in the field. What advice would you give to aspiring security professionals, especially those who are underrepresented, who are looking to pursue a, you know, a career in this sector? The biggest thing I always say to people is, what are you passionate about? 
there's this kind of misconception that you have to be deeply technical, you have to go into pen testing or be a security analyst. And, and these are great jobs and people might want to do that and they might already have that as an ambition. But I think sometimes it can be off-putting to some people who are trying to either pivot into the career for the first time or move across from a different career that they think they then have to get all these different technologies and certifications and various different things. What I always say to people is, what is your passion? Find the thing that you love and pivot off that. And sometimes you kind of have to think about, you need to know what you hate as much as you love as well. I don't really want people to feel like that they're going to have to invest a lot of time, a lot of money and taking various courses when they kind of go down this route and they find out they absolutely hate it. It's the worst thing ever. So I would really encourage people to be as inquisitive as possible. Try as many things as you can, but don't invest money until you're sure what it is that you want. As I say, it's always about the passion. Follow your passion first. Yeah, that's really great advice. I think it's actually the hardest first step of working out what you actually want to do, especially even if you narrow it down to cybersecurity, like there are a number of jobs within it that you kind of have to yeah, explore. I think it's, I think it's a great point. So finally, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Oh, yeah. Well, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Final shameless plug for my book as well, Effective Crisis Management, that you can find on Amazon if you're so inclined. Amazing. All right. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. All right. I think it's time for us to move on to a little bit of Did You Know? So Did You Know is where we like to share a quick one password or security tip that our listeners might have either forgotten about or might not have thought about before. We also like to give a shout out to any recent personal recommendations of things we've been loving as well, whether it's a book, a TV show, an app, a recipe, anything goes. So this week, Did You Know, you can actually use one password for answers to security questions. I knew this. I did it just the other day. 1Password can save security questions and generate random answers. You should never use real info for security questions as it's often information that can be easily found online and thus not very secure. These are security questions like, what's your favorite color? What was your first dog's name? When's your anniversary? What's your mother's maiden name? These are all things that People can find out about you just from most stuff people share on social media. So instead of actually giving out your mother's maiden name or the color of the house you grew up in, you can instead answer Steam Mars Occasion Thud. That's a random passphrase that was generated by the one password password generator and use that as your answer. Now, you put these in for the various questions. It doesn't really matter what the questions are. You're just providing a nonsensical answer. And the next time you get asked, you just pull them out of one password and, and paste them in and away you go. Where these really get fun, though, is if you ever have to answer these over the phone and someone asks you, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? And, and you have to answer uh, just the most nonsensical things in the world. <laughs> there is always a nice long pause yeah. after you give an answer like that. And then they find out that it actually matches. It's great. Yeah. I have been there, and yes, it is hilarious. Uh, so, Anna, Matt, anything that you wanted to share, anything you've been loving lately, any, any one password tips you have? Anything is fair game at this point. Well, Rue, did you know that I have just finished watching The Bear on Disney Plus? Have you seen The Bear? Oh, I've seen The Bear. Season one was fantastic. Oh, uh, I've just finished season two, and it is, you know, up there with one of my favorite TV shows that I've ever seen, I think. Yeah. I think you're you're a bit of a foodie like me, aren't you, Rue? I am. I am. Yeah. So yeah, the bear is about a young chef called Kami, 
who takes over his brother's sandwich shop and tries to turn it into a more serious kind of Michelin star restaurant. But it's just one of those shows. I think just watching them cooking all the food, seeing the behind the scenes of the kitchen, it's just oh, nothing like it. And it's just one of those shows that everything comes together, like amazing acting, amazing editing, amazing camera work, amazing character development, script writing. It has it all. So, yeah, I would highly recommend it if you're a bit of a foodie like me. It's a very stressful show as well, right? Like the, the energy is really high, like the tension is really high. I have to be in the right mood for this. I watched one episode and I was like, I'm exhausted. Yes, you have to be in the right mood because it is, you know, behind the scenes of a high pressured kitchen, if you like that kind of thing. But um, no, I love it. If you want a cooking show that is not high pressure and is like leaves you feeling good inside, you go watch Gordon Ramsay's Uncharted, also available on Disney+. It is mm-hmm. Gordon Ramsay traveling around the world to different locations and like steeping himself in the cuisine of, of different different areas and like trying to cook as well as as local cooks and, and you know walking away with some great experiences and, and knowledge and it's really fun to watch and he's he doesn't get shouty or, or anything like that like it's very I mean he swears a lot but that's just him but it's also like very good natured it's it's great we love it have you seen the Fred Gino Gordon series? That's also good. It's, yeah. it's like a, you know, a, a number of them. Basically, it's it's Gordon Ramsay and then Fred. Oh, God, what's Fred's last name? Fred Sinowicz? No. Yeah, something like that. And then Gino DeCampo as well. Uh, just the three of them together is is so good. I would highly recommend that. That sounds fantastic. All right. Shall we move on to Hacker No Hacker? Let's go. So in a world where hacker group names are either iconic or just super cringy, each week we try to guess if these hacker names are real or fake. And I think it's that time again where we get to play the Hacker No Hacker jingle. So here it is. Hacker No Hacker, is it real or fake? Ba-doom, doom, doom. Hacker No Hacker, real or a mistake? So, Matt, I think you won the last round. So, Rue, you got to bring it back. How have you avoided actually playing this game? Uh, and, and you seem to be the host every time that, that you're on the podcast. I'm, I'm, I know, right? I'm crying foul play here. Okay, next time. Next time I'm on the pod, Matt, you can host and I'll play. All right, here we go. Okay, so the first one we have is Panther Mothership. Is that real or fake? Oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> that's really good. If that's real, that's that's like a, well, it's Matt's scale to score. Panther Mothership. I like it so much. I'm going to go true, even though I'm fairly certain it's not. I I also was going to go real on this one because I also think it's just a fantastic name. If it's not, it's a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah. If not, we're feeding the cybersecurity industry, you know, the the dark side of the cybersecurity industry, (laughs) the next name. I was going to say, maybe I should become a hacker because I did create this one. It is fake. Oh. Is this the name of your wannabe band? Yes. Like, if you started a band that it was like... Yeah. We wear lots of leather. Somewhere in between, like, the Rolling Stones and uh, ACDC. Oh, yeah. Like a classic, maybe 70s rock band, Panther Mothership. Yeah. Yeah. I played I played bass for Panther Mothership in high school. So, yeah. <laughs> Matt's on drums. If we ever do merch for the podcast, oh. 
I, I think instead of just doing like random memorable merchandise, we should do like Panther Mothership as a band t-shirt. Oh, yes. Uh, Matt, you should... You're better at this than I am. You should go in mid-journey this. Like, have mid-journey. Create a, a Panther mothership. <laughs> you sketch us all out as 80s, band members. 80s metal band <laughs> yeah. logo t-shirt. With, like, the font that's got, like, the lightning bolts. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Okay, this is this is now the new uh, in inside joke uh, <laughs> of, of the podcast. Yes. Panther mothership. Mm. I will wear a Panther Mothership t-shirt. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next up we have Denon Tsunami. (laughs) God, that's That's really... Denon Tsunami. That's a very visceral name, isn't it? Like, I immediately (laughs) got this this mental image of a a Denon Tsunami. Yeah. Is this real or fake? (sighs) It's it's fake. This this is difficult. This is fake. Yeah, I think this is fake. You are both wrong. It is real. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so this is another Microsoft branded hacking group name. So we had Crimson Sandstorm last episode as Microsoft is using weather themed names to classify hacking groups. Oh, that's right. I got to remember that. Oh. The names are categorized based on countries and governments of origin or financial motivation. So, for example, Chinese hacking groups will refer to a typhoon, Iranian groups a sandstorm, Russian groups a blizzard, and hacking groups from Turkey refer to dust. So I'm going to hope there's one called fairy dust in there somewhere as well. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so next up, I'm not sure if this is describing a hacking group name or Rue, but we have... Cozy Bear. <laughs> is that real or fake? You know, you know me. Old Cozy Bear. Old Cozy Bear. This is fake. It's not a real thing. Um, yeah, this is fake. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It is real. Oh, my God. Oh, again? So Cozy Bear, wow. classified by the United States federal government as an advanced persistent threat, is a Russian hacker group that breached the systems of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. The group has been given various nicknames by other security firms, including Cozy Car, Cozy Duke, Dark Halo and Office Monkeys, to name a few. So sorry, did you say Dark Kato? Dark Halo. Oh, Halo. Okay. Okay. Next one is Wraith Chaos. Real. Is that real? Real. Fake. Absolutely real. Yeah. I'm going real on that one as well. I dislike the game you're playing, Matt, because you are matching me answer for answer. And then on the last one, you're going to go the opposite of me and you're going to win the game with one point. And I don't like (laughs) it. And neither of you have any points at this point. Yeah, I'm following you too closely is the problem. I hate to break it to you, but you still don't have any points because it is fake. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, I, I need to answer the next one and, and, like, not listen to you. All right, go ahead. I'll let you speak first. So next one we have is Shadow Override. Is that real or fake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I'm going to go real on this one. No, that's fake. It's too on the nose. That's fake. Oh, God, I think you've got this. (laughs) (laughs) It is my pleasure to announce that Rue does have this. He's got a point. It is fake. (laughs) Rue has one point. (laughs) Eat it. Woo, we're on the board, everybody. Okay, so the final one. <laughs> There's only one left. <laughs> and Rue has one point, and Matt has no points. 
It is mischievous night owl. I think that's fake. That was my gut as well. I'm going to my gut. I'm saying fake. I'm going to win this game. Okay. So you are both correct. It is fake. Rue gets two points. Hey. Fantastic. Finally, I win one four games in. Well done for uh, turning up there, Matt, and scoring a point. I did. Yikes. I did score four points the last time, though, so I feel like, you know, (laughs) you're balancing things out. Yeah. For the record, I only, out of four games, I've only scored four points. (laughs) uh, Sorry, six points total. uh, You're consistently inconsistent. That's true. Two points every game. Matt, all you have to do is get more than two points. That's that's it. If you get more than two, you win. That's the real game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was lovely. Excellent. Love you both. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.